Good morning. Hi, everyone. Man, we got a great morning to be together, and I have all kinds of stuff to share with you. Uh, even some incredible uh, stories before we get into the Word of God. Real quick, how many of you enjoyed the Missions Expo last weekend? Did you enjoy that? I thought that was awesome. I thought, I thought just the idea that we could meet all our partners and hear all the incredible stories of life change that's going on around the planet was pretty awesome. Um, I have a couple other things that I wanted to share with you, um, and that is we are prepping for the worship, prayer, and healing night. Yeah? You all doing this with us? Okay, great. Yeah. Uh, we got 40 days that we've been prepping. Today is day 13. So if you have not yet got on board with cutting something out of your life and dedicating more and more of your heart and prayer to Jesus Christ and the Lord uh, throughout this time, I would love for you to join us. I don't know if any of you follow my uh, Facebook page, my public figure Facebook page, but for 40 days I'm doing Facebook Live every morning, just engaging with uh, you and praying together and getting the day started right. So if you're into that, maybe you can join me and the rest of us on that. But I, I want our faith to build throughout this time. So I'm going to be sharing some stories with you, things that God is doing in our midst, having different folks share things even up here, and I'll be telling their stories. And I have two particular stories I would like to share with you. Do you realize that we have a God who still heals today? Do you agree with that? All right. Amen. Did you also know that he's not waiting for the worship, prayer, and healing night? Uh, he is actually doing a bunch of stuff beforehand. Uh, and so he is not interested in waiting for November 13th, right? Is he like, I get it. It's Sunday night. All right, I'll write it down. But he is already doing incredible things. I got a chance to hear of two stories last week that I would like to just share with you. One of those comes from... Uh, a, a sweet woman here at the church, her and her husband have been here for years, very steady, very consistent, incredibly sweet people. She's a nurse. She's also a grandma and she has the wonderful opportunity of watching her grandkids, right? And we all know that if you're a grandparent, this is one of the favorite things of all time. You get to watch your little babies. Yeah, there we go. We get some amens on grandparent stuff. I love this. Well, that's how she feels. She loves her grandkids with all of her heart. And so she had an opportunity to watch them. They have a two-year-old approximately, and they have a one-year-old approximately. So it's a little younger than that. Um, so she was changing the little one on the changing table and the little older one, the two-year-old decided to open the door and run outside. Now you got to know automatically as a parent, what do you do in that situation? Because now you have two of them splitting out, right? Now, normally one of the reasons God tried to give us two parents is to try to divide and conquer. You know what I'm saying? Uh, when they over and outnumber us, right? It gets a little crazy when they start spilling out. So of course, the immediate threat was this little one that's running out the door. So she then went, ran outside to go grab the little one, and the first one fell off the changing table. When the baby hit the ground, the baby uh, was not moving. Now, she's a nurse. She knows what it means when a little baby's not moving. She immediately uh, panicked and then began to pray. Uh, she is a woman of faith, um, and, and that moment, nothing else mattered but the protection of that little child. She had to call mom and dad and all these different things, and they were worried. She called 911 immediately. 
they dispatched somebody to come pick up the baby. They found out along the way as she's praying like crazy, the baby had a skull fracture. Now, you know what that would feel like as a mama, as a grandma. That's your worst nightmare. And so baby had a skull fracture, and as they were waiting and doing the CT and all that thing, you know, they had the, the, the neck brace and all that stuff on the baby. She, as she told me this uh, last Saturday night, her face looked like it had been through an emotional war, but yet there was a certain peace to it as well. She then told me the end of the story. She said, Lance, I prayed and I prayed and I prayed. And I said, God, please have mercy on this little baby. And may there be no long-lasting ramifications. She said, Pastor, i got to show you this. And she opened up her phone. She said, this was taken two days after the little baby's at Bishop's Pumpkin Farm. Not only is she completely healed, the fracture's gone. Amen. One of the coolest things about that story is that she said... Pastor, I'm a nurse. I'm not a big believer in all the miracles and all that stuff. She said, it's really, really hard for me. But I go to a church where everyone keeps talking about the fact that God heals today. And I keep going to a church where God can do the impossible at any moment. And so I knew the one place I needed to run was into his hands so that he might solve the problem. Let me give you another story. I don't know how many of you know our uh, interim college young adult pastor, Travis Honey, But Travis and Rebecca Honey have been here for quite some time. And uh, they have three kids. So it's Ezra, Zion, and Zoe, all right? So Zoe's uh, about two and a half. And uh, the day before this other event happened, on Tuesday, um, Zoe was helping dad clean the garage. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a two and a half year old help you clean the garage, but, uh, it basically goes like this. I run outside. I run inside. I run outside. I run inside. That's basically your entire help for the day. So I'm not so sure of the effectiveness of hiring her. You know what I mean? But anyway, as she was going in and out of the house, he heard the door slam and he heard her scream. Now, when you hear something like that, he assumed that it was her fingers because little ones always get their fingers caught in the door. So he ran over to her and she was holding her hand, of course. And, and he said, uh, Zoe, what happened? And she took her hand away and two inches above her wrist, it folded at a 90 degree angle. Now, that obviously means a severing of both the radius and the ulna, right? Uh, and so you have an immediate significant break. Now, he immediately put his hand upon her as she's screaming, and he said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, be healed. And then he ran inside, got the other kids, and we're all going to go inside, and we're going to get an ice pack, and we're going to do all the things that little babies need, and we're going to run to the hospital. So as they went inside, he went to go get the ice bag. Mom now has Zoe, and he said, I felt like the Holy Spirit said, you got to pray again. So he went over to her and he laid his hands upon her wrist, and he said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, be healed, and may there be no lasting effects on this. He said, the minute I prayed that all the energy went out of my body. He said, he said, it was the weirdest thing. Now, all of us that are skeptics, right? We're going, okay, so either you're in shock or you're having a panic attack or you're right, you know, all these things. And, and so he said, it was, I I'd so lost all my energy that they ran to the car. He said, I had to lay on the ground. He said, I couldn't get up for a minute. Uh, after a minute, I was able to get my energy back up, and then I bolted out, and I ran out to the car where she was still crying. 
Now, he said, we're praying and praying and praying. And he said, all of a sudden she stops crying and she starts giggling. He said, we had the ice pack on her arm. She grabs the ice pack and throws it. And they said, Zoe, what are you doing? Where's your boo-boo? And she pointed to her other arm. And they're like, no, that's not the one. It's your other arm, right? They said, hand me the stuffed animal. She handed it with her broken arm. And they're like, what is going on? They pull into the hospital uh, parking lot. And not only does she help herself out of the car seat and she's screwing around playing, but she ends up hanging by that arm on the car. The whole, the whole wrist is healed and all of the lines have been removed in Jesus name. Amen. Now, I don't know, I don't know how much you've been around miracles, but I don't know what you do with that, right? That's one of those things where I'm pretty sure parents know if their daughter's arm is broken and I'm pretty sure they know when it's all fixed. So how that all works and what goes on in between and why God heals some and doesn't heal others, I don't have all those answers for you. What I do know is that our God heals. What I do know is that our God is present and active. And I do know that prayer matters because God says it matters. It has nothing to do with the individual per se praying as much as it has to do with the power of God. And he determines and says, this is not going to hurt anymore. And click, it's gone. So as we begin to prepare for this time where we're going to be coming together with all these other churches and we're all in one collective heart going to cry out, Dad, what about now? What about now? I prayed about it 42,000 times and Lord, it seemed like it didn't do anything. And now I'm going to pray again and 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 I'm just going to say, Lord, will you heal this? Because there are many, many things going on in this church that do not need to hurt anymore. And our God is going to be able to answer whatever he wishes and he'll be able to move in whatever fashion he wants because I need you to understand this and I'll close with this thought. Cancer is easy to cure as a common cold for our great God. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, well, let's start a brand new series. Take out your Bibles. Take out the handout sheet that was given to you at the front door. We are starting a brand new series to the book of Judges. Would you turn with me to Judges chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to be looking at it through the lens of identity in this year of identity. And we've entitled this series, Identity in Crisis. How are we going to act when crisis hits? And I want us to relate all of this to our own lives, that whether you have a crisis in your family, or you have a crisis at work, or you have a crisis in your country, or you have a crisis in the neighborhood, whatever it is, your identity, whether it's solid in Jesus, is going to cause you to react very differently. That who God is and who we believe ourselves to be in light of that is going to change our reactions to situations. The book of Judges is one of the most dysfunctional seasons of Israel's history. I'm going to be teaching you messages that I'm going to have to put warnings on the door for the kids. There is so much dysfunction, you're going to wonder whether or not I'm doing a soap opera or I'm doing the Bible. There is stuff in here you're going to be horrified by and stuff that you're going to go, really? They included that in the Word of God. What is wrong with them? Right? (laughs) 
But as we look through all this dysfunction, those that knew who God was and who they were went one direction, and those who did not have a good solid identity went another direction. We need to know that how we believe ourselves to be in light of God changes everything. Therefore, we're going to bake a little bit in the concept of identity in crisis. Now, let me give you a little bit of a setup by giving you the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you. The Bible says we have three enemies in our life. They are not the irritating neighbor next door. They are not the person that keeps posting irritating stuff on Facebook. You do not have enemies that have flesh on them because the Bible says we have three enemies, the world, the flesh, the devil. The world, the flesh, the devil, they are all going to challenge our identity day in and day out. What are we going to do? Are we going to remain fixed to the Lord? Or are we going to be so movable and so compromised and so double-minded? The world, the flesh, the devil. And it would be so neat if real life was like the hour dramas on TV, right? You know that when you start the drama, it's going to wrap up at the end of an hour. You're going to know why everybody did what they did. You're going to have a solution to the problem. But can I hear an amen if you think life is more messy than that? Amen. All right. So you all know that it doesn't go like that, that there's so many unanswered questions. There's so much confusion. There's so many doubts. There's so many fears. There's things going on in our world. And you say, Lord, where are you? What are you doing? Well, in the same way, spiritual warfare is very similar to that. Our emotional warfare of trying to hang on to our identity when being challenged all the time is difficult. It'd be great if we could land one swift blow and Suddenly all the enemies back off, but life is more messy than that. The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this. The defeat of the enemy is rarely a one-time event. The defeat of the enemy is rarely a one-time event. It's a process. You say, well, Lance, actually on the cross, Jesus said it is finished. And with one fell swoop, he defeated death defeated hell, defeated the devil. And I would say, I agree with you. But did you also read the passage where he said, and now I'm going to put my enemies under my feet and wrap things up. There's a process of cleanup. Yes, there was the significant blow that took the power out of the enemy, but there's still territory to be possessed. There's still territory to be lived in to be walked in, that even though we have the deed to the land, we have not yet lived in it. Does that all make sense? In the same way, we're going to pick up in an early time in Israel's history where Joshua now has passed away and has to transition to the next leadership. And they're doing this campaign into the promised land that God said, this land is yours. You own it, but now I need you to possess it. And that's an awful lot of hard work. Well, I want us to relate that to our lives. Jesus set us free once and for all. Even though we have the deed to our lives, we still willingly walk into bondage. We still willingly walk into bad habits. We still willingly cause all types of drama, right? And there is a process by which as we are obedient to the Lord, he allows us to enjoy our freedom and not be limited by it. So what I do not want you to hear as I'm teaching is that unless we're obedient, God doesn't love us. It has nothing to do with our identity. It has nothing to do with his love. It has everything to do 
with whether or not we have a lot of room to move around or a little tiny bit of room to move around. I think there's a lot more territory that we need to have in our lives. I think that addiction narrows down our lives and it lets us live in a little tiny place. I think that fear and unforgiveness and baggage and hurt and pain limits the territory we can walk in. I don't think we feel as free as Jesus made us. I think that there's a degree to where we need to go own it and go fight for it and stop letting the enemy backfill into it. Y'all know what I'm talking about. All right, that's what this series is really about. So as we begin, let me give you a little background because chapters one and two of Judges is transitionary. Meaning in one chapter it says Joshua was dead, the next chapter it says he's alive. And you're going, come on, it's like everyone getting resurrected? No. It merely is saying that there once was a guy named Moses. You all know him, right? He leads the people after 400 years of slavery, four generations of slavery. That's all they know. That's all their parents were. That's all their grandparents were. They were slave mindset. God uses Moses who was raised in Pharaoh's household for 40 years. He has him out in the desert for the next 40 years to learn how to be a shepherd of sheep that don't want to follow. And then he brings him back at the age of 80 and has him lead Israel out of Egyptian slavery. They then wander in the desert for 40 years. At 120 years old, God turns his lights out. Now, it wasn't that he died of old age. It wasn't that he died because he was sick. God just said, and scene. Click. (laughs) Moses was gone. Moses had a right-hand man. His name was Joshua. Joshua was a brilliant strategist, an obedient man of God, a brilliant man. And sure enough, he was going to lead them next. He was going to take them into the campaign to take the territory. And he was awesome. He marks out a map and seeks God and draws where all the 12 tribes of Israel have have their land allotted to them. But now they got to go take it. But at 110 years old, he passes away. And even though Israel followed God under his leadership and the elders that outlived him, there was no succession plan. And they began to lose their way. This is where we pick up the story because there's a lot of land yet to take. Let us begin in chapter 1, verse 1. And it says this. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord. Now, that's a brilliant idea. Would you agree? We might want to ask God stuff because here's how it practically works in our lives. We only ask God once our way messed up. Yeah, it's kind of like, Lord, I got this one. Lord, I got this one. Lord, I didn't get this one. What did you want me to do? He's like, why didn't you ask me the first time? Well, because every time I ask you, you don't say anything. That's why I didn't say. Right. I mean, here's the deal. If I was to ask you, how come you don't ask the Lord on the situations of your life and questions? How come you don't ask the Lord first? You're going to go, well, because the last 42 times I asked, it was totally silent. Now, let me express something to you. I believe that when we ask God for his direction, I believe that something happens supernaturally. I think that the Holy Spirit speaks at our spirit, and I think that we change. I don't see anywhere in Scripture where someone said, I really want to know your heart, God, and then he leads them astray. I don't, I don't really see that. However, I know it feels like... God doesn't answer us a lot of the time. 
Now, let me, say, let me suggest that even if he didn't answer, discipleship is going on. Here's why. Let's run through this scenario as if he was a real dad. Hey, dad, I want to know the answer to a question. All right, what's your question? Should I go to Target or Walmart? They are both having a sale, right? And I don't know what your leading is, Lord. Automatically, there may be a response to God going, that's a stupid question. I know that everyone says there are no stupid questions. That's a stupid question. I don't, maybe he says that. I don't think so, but maybe he says that. But maybe he says, my child, here's the deal. What do you want to do? I don't need to give you a direction on that because here's why. If I give you the direction, a lot of times you're only asking me so you don't fail. That's your whole reason for asking, God, what do you want me to do so I don't do anything wrong? What do you, what do you want me to do, Lord, so I'm always successful? Well, how co- I don't want you to just always be successful. I want you to be real. I want you to walk with me. So if I'm quiet, I'm still discipling you because here's what I'm saying to you. What do you want to do? Because whatever your choice is, is going to reveal how much work we've been doing. If you choose what I would want to choose, your heart is leaning into my way. If you start going a complete opposite direction and it blows up in your face, I guess we have a little bit more discipleship to do. I would suggest to you that God's silence on matters is more revealing than if he just gave you the answer. Because if he gives you the answer, you go off on autopilot and you want to blame him if anything goes wrong. What if life is actually just difficult and hard? What if... We're supposed to walk it out. What if God wants us in the process? He's not interested in just having clean solutions. I would suggest to you that if indeed you believe God is silent, even in his silence, he is still ministering to you. I think prayer always matters. So they inquired of the Lord, it says, and they wanted to know an answer. What was the answer? Who shall go up first? for us against the Canaanites, the people that live in the land, to fight against them. All right, so now Joshua's gone. They still got more stuff to do. Who's supposed to go first? Do you all remember that there are 12 tribes of Israel? Yeah? But do you remember how they were marked out? And here's what I mean. There was a guy who was the father of all Jews. His name is Abraham. He had a son named Isaac who had a son named what? Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to? Israel. All right. How many boys did he have? 12. Okay. So you would go, oh, so his 12 boys are the 12 tribes of Israel. No. And you go, wait, wait, wait. No, I do know that. that, Yes. No. Here's why. One of his boys was special. His name was Joseph. Y'all remember the coat of many colors guy? So when they were drawing out the map of allotments, they noticed that Levi didn't get any space, one of the other boys. He ended up being sprinkled all over the land as a priestly helper group. So now you have a missing spot. You have Joseph's spot and a missing spot. So Joseph got two. His two boys got to fill those spots. So you have 10 of the original boys and two of the grandkids. Ephraim and Manasseh were Joseph's boys, their tribes of Israel. So you have 10 boys, two grandkids. That is the 12 tribes of Israel. All right. As they mark all these out, they said, who's going to lead the campaign? And right here it says, the Lord said, Yahweh said, and how cool would it be if God just opens the sky and tells us, and we read this in black and white and go, see, this is the life I want to lead. 
I ask God a question and he tells me how to win. The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And you go, that is awesome. Automatic victory. That's great. So Judah says to Simeon, his blood brother, his older brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Here's something I need you to know. Before Jacob or Israel died, he spoke a prophetic blessing over all his boys. Do you remember this? Here's what's intriguing about it. His firstborn's name was Reuben. Then it went Simeon. Then it went Levi. Then it went Judah. Judah is a fourth son. But the prophecy over him from his dad was you're going to be the kingly line. You're going to lead your brothers. Why is fourth guy going to lead? Now there's a bunch of details in the story but the bottom line is because god said so right it didn't matter when he was born even though in that culture the firstborn should always be the one that leads it grabs judah the fourthborn, and he said you're going to lead your brothers but up until this very moment judah hasn't led anything this is the fulfillment and blossoming of that prophecy given so long ago I don't know how many of you have ever had God speak over you and say something about something coming open in your life or something you're waiting for to prophetically happen and you had to wait for it, but it's a drag. It is a drag to wait, right? But just because we're waiting doesn't mean God forgot. Up until this point, Judah didn't do any leading. Moses was not from Judah. Joshua was not from Judah. There's a bunch of folks that led that were not from Judah. Judah hasn't led till right now. And God said, and you're on. Here we go, kid. So Judah's team, the dads have passed away. Now it's their family lines. So Judah says to Simeon, who has on the map territory inside of Judah's territory. They're super close. He said, hey, I'll help you. You help me. Now I have to ask you a question here. How should we read that? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? One commentary said this, how beautiful it is for the unity, right? And in one sense, if we go that direction, what a great application for the church today. Would you agree with me that there is a lot of territory to be taken in the greater Sacramento area? Don't you think that we should partner with other churches to get it done? I mean, come on. Uh, Let's say that God says, hey, I don't like sex trafficking. Imagine that. So how about you respond to that? What, we're supposed to handle it all ourselves or are we supposed to partner together to get it done? Right? Of course you partner together. Let's say God said, I want to have a big move of answered prayer and I want you all to get together to do it. Doesn't that sound right? Okay, so there's a bunch of stuff we need to handle in our region, but we need to partner together to go take the territory. We help them, they help us, it helps our region. And we go, man, what a cool sermon. Another commentary said this. Judah blew it. Why? Because God said, you go. And he went and grabbed a buddy and said, you help me out. God's like, I could have taken care of you all by myself. Is that what it means? Here's what's fascinating, and this is how it ties into our lives. There's a bunch of questions we ask God that it depends on how you look at it, whether which side is right. 
So what makes the difference? What makes the determination? What does God want in the moment? Either one could be great. It all depends on what God wants. How are we ever going to know that unless we ask him? Remember, in this church, we constantly say the two most important questions to ever ask are what is God saying and what am I going to do about it? Why? Because obedience is the only thing that matters. It's not outcomes. It's not brilliant success. It's not that it went easy or we didn't fail. It's obedience to our heavenly father. That's the only thing that matters. So whether or not he was supposed to partner up or whether or not he wasn't really depends on what God wanted. It is not commented on in scripture which way it should be. So we're left wondering. We pick it up with just a bit of a paraphrase. So they go out and they fight. Uh, Judah and Simeon together go in. They beat down 10,000 bad guys and they beat up a king, a bad king named Adonai Bezek. You all know the word Adonai, right? That actually means Lord or King. So it's the King of Bezek, not very original because he's from Bezek, but they end up grabbing him and they, and they end up capturing him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. That seems rather random. You're like, you know, you could wound him a lot better. Why did they do that? Because now he can't run away or hold a sword. He's not allowed to fight back and he's not allowed to run away. That's the idea of entrapment. Now, that was also a humiliation thing, but here's what's fascinating. He's the first Canaanite character in this story to speak. One commentary brought this out. I thought it was brilliant. He's the first one to speak, and in a sense, he's going to speak on behalf of all the Canaanite peoples they're about to engage with, and here's what he said. Well, God has repaid me. I've done this to 75 different kings and humiliated them under my table. Now it's my turn. Why is that important? Because it says something very powerful about the campaign of the promised land. I don't know how many of you have ever wrestled with the idea of the campaign of the promised land. Because it's crazy. When you start looking at it, you're like, whoa, 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 hold on. God comes in, tells Israel, you can go take over other people's territory and kill men, women, and children. How is that okay? How in any way does that line up with the Christian ideal, right? I mean, maybe you've wrestled with that. Let me be very clear and brief on this. Let me tell you what's going on. It's very little about Israel at all. Here's why. God kept his own family, his own people, his own promised children in slavery for 400 years. Do you know why? The Bible says why. Because he was working with the Canaanite people and calling them to himself for four generations. Hey guys, I want you to be with me. Hey guys, I want you to be with me. Hey guys, I want you to be with me. For four generations, they shut him down. He said, all right, you're done. The campaign of the promised land was more about God's judgment of the people, wiping them out and then allowing his children to backfill. It was not about them being greedy and selfish and wanting more land. So they were allowed to call a holy war. And they were allowed to go do whatever they wanted. That is not correct. What is correct is they were carrying out the judgment of God. And God was very clear. He goes, when you take the land, I don't want you looking back and going, man, we're awesome. You're not awesome. 
You're terrible to work with. What I'm telling you is I needed to get something done and I wanted you to get it done and I'm able to fulfill a prophecy to your forefathers to get you in that land. But I only gave them that knowing what I was going to do with those Canaanite peoples. So it's not about you as much as you think it is. Let me continue to paraphrase. As they're going through and they're taking all these different territories, they go down and they start beating up the south and they take over this town. They put it to the fire. They don't really occupy it, but they burn it down. It's called Jerusalem. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. Well, what's interesting is they actually don't get Jerusalem to occupy it until King David 350 years later. So they didn't win it all. But anyway, while they're in the south, there's a town called Hebron. And this is only important for one reason. Giants live there. And you're like, what do you mean giants? Is it like kind of like the, you know, these crazy Lord of the Ring giants, right? They're big, right? And they all say fee fi fo fum wherever they go. No. No, these giants mean super big people. They were just a large people group. Um, when you think about uh, the Philistine Goliath, I want you to think about that. That guy was nine feet tall. That's not normal. So something's wrong with these guys' gene pool. I'll just tell you that. So these guys are absolutely massive. They were one of the reasons why the spies never wanted to go in in the first place. They're descendants from a super giant guy called Anak. And you go, what, are you, what is your point? All right, here's my point. Have you ever heard of the guy named Caleb? All right, so Caleb and Joshua were buddies. They were two of the 12 spies sent out initially to look in the promised land. 12 spies go out right when they get out of Egypt. They spy out the promised land. They come back and give a report. 10 of them said, there's no way we're going in there. There are giants in the land. It's not good. Let's just hang out here. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb said, if God is with us, of course we go. There's nothing that can stand against our God. Well, everyone mutinied against them and they didn't go in. And that's why they wandered around for 40 years. But make no mistake, Joshua and Caleb are awesome. So all of a sudden, they come up to this place called Hebron, and there's giants in the land. Caleb walks forward and says, hey, guys, let me take it. He said, let me tell you a story. I was 40 years old when I spied out the land, right? So automatically, I'm 44. So he's four years younger than me, but he was a 40-year-old man when he spies out the land. He said, then we wandered for 40 years. Now we've been doing this campaign for five years. I'm 85 years old. I want my land. All right, which one do you want? The one with the giants in it. I'll kill everyone. (laughs) Now, you're hardcore if you're an 85-year-old strapping and loading everything on going, I'll kill everyone. Let's do it. That's Caleb. I need you to understand, he's like mega soldier, all right? So Caleb's a tough guy, goes in, beats everybody up, takes his territory. And that's where we pick up the next story. I love this story. Here we go. Verse 11. From there, they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath-Sephir. Nobody cares. And Caleb, he's from Judah. He was the representative of the kingly line. Caleb, this 85-year-old guy who took the land, said, He who attacks this city and captures it, I'll give him my daughter for a wife. Let's pause. Ladies, are you cool with this? (laughs) Right? What if we just did that now? Right? Then all of a sudden you get some grunt, smelly guy who's like killing people and he's like, hey, here's your treat. That's really weird. 
I mean, in our world, it doesn't even, I mean, it doesn't mean that he's nice. It doesn't mean that he's cute. It doesn't mean anything. You just get conquering guy. But that's how it worked back then. They had this agreement, this arrangement, these arranged marriages, and both families were supposed to bring something to the table. The woman would bring a dowry concept, and the man would pay a bride price. Sometimes that was done by military. He would come in and help the nation out or help the people group out or help the family out by some military strategy. So sure enough, this guy, look at verse 13, and Othniel, remember that name, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Oxa, his daughter, for a wife. Now, right off the bat, did you see what happened? It looks like he married his niece. Gross. Right? Now, if you go back in their lineage in the Old Testament, they're actually not. That's not his niece. The family is far more removed than that. But right off the bat, it looks creepy. I just need you to know it's only kind of creepy. It's not totally creepy. It's kind of creepy. All right? So now, Caleb's daughter, and how hardcore do you think his family is? If that's your dad, what's going on with the kids? All right? So this Oxa, this lady, she from Caleb's lineage marries tough guy who just took the territory. This is called a power couple, right? So they get together. Look at verse 14. And when she came to her new husband, she urged him to ask her father for a field. Now he just got a daughter from Caleb and I don't know how tough you are, but I don't want him as a father-in-law. I don't want Caleb as a father. I'm not going to go ask him for anything that I'm just going to keep walking, right? I'm going to do my own thing. Yes, sir. No, sir. That's how it works, right? Well, sure enough, he asks him for a field and dad gives him some lame spot out in the desert. Well, she's not going to have that. Her dad's Caleb. She's smart. She's brilliant. She's like, no, 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 no. This isn't going to work. And she dismounted from her donkey and Caleb saw her walking up and he goes, what do you want? I mean, he knows his daughter. She's like, dad, what do you think I'm going to come up and ask for? Come on. You train me better than that. She said to him, I want you to give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the wilderness, thanks for that, give me also springs of water. I need to make some use of this land. We got lives to take care of. We got business to do. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. All right, their whole family line just got changed. Why? Because this woman is so brilliant, she's not just thinking about today, she's thinking about tomorrow. So now you have tough guy marrying brilliant woman. Do you understand what's happening here? And she comes in and she's just business and strategy all across the board. If we're going to make use of this land, we need that, we need that, we need that. Dad, I need you to kick it down to me. And then I'll make a life. Pretty awesome. It says this, verse 16, And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms, which is Jericho, into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the wilderness near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. Now, you would probably blow past this and just go, ah, whatever. Here's what you just heard. Remember Moses' father-in-law, good guy, Jethro. His people group now is intermarried into Israel. And he now has land. Is that good or bad? Well, I don't know. They're family. You've got to be nice to the guy who was nice to you, right? Except what was God's rule? This is for Israel. This isn't anybody else's land. This is called compromise for all the right reasons in your mind. And it still is going to cause them a problem. Let's keep moving on. I'll paraphrase. 
So Judah and Simeon, they conquer more area. They conquer some Philistine land and tick off the Philistines, right? And then Joseph's boys conquered Bethel, and they did it by allowing a guy who came out of the city. They said, hey, if you show us the way in, we'll let you live. Kind of like the Rahab thing. And he's like, all right, here's how you get in the city. And they conquered it, and they let him go, and he reestablished a city. Why is that important to note? What did God say? I understand you did it for a good reason. I understand that you're trying to be nice. Now, all of a sudden, you have a foreign nation again establishing territory in your land. What is my point in this? Y'all, there's so many compromises we make in our lives because we want to do nice things. We want to look good. We want to be fair. We want to be sweet. We want to look like the best people. A lot of the reasons we compromise isn't for what we would think as a sinful reason. Nevertheless, it's compromise. Hmm. Look at verse 28. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. If you keep reading this story, you find out it talks about nine of the 12 tribes. Seven of them failed to take their land. Why? Because it was too hard. How much territory in your life have you not taken because it's just hard? Hmm. Let's keep moving forward. Look at verse chapter 2, verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from their base camp of Gilgal to the city where they were at. And he said, quote, I brought you up from Egypt. This is God talking. I brought you up from Egypt. I brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. I will uphold my side of the bargain. And you, on your side of the bargain, will not make any covenant, any contract, any treaty, any promise with the inhabitants of this land. You will break down their altars, remove their false gods, get out their bogus religion, because I'm trying to make a point here, and I told you to get it done right. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, fine, contract is changed. I will not drive them out before you, but they will become thorns in your sides, and their gods will become a snare to you. Uh-oh. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of where they were staying the weepers, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. What's the point? It's not how you start, it's how you finish. Everybody wants to start good. Everyone wants to start with fire and passion and power. When you first got saved, what were you like? You were ready to give everything over to the Lord. You were like, I want all the freedom you have. I want all the forgiveness you have. I want all the grace that you have. I'm all in, Lord. I will serve you all the days of my life. I don't care how boring it is. I don't care how dramatic it is. I don't care how difficult it is. God, let's go. I want a wide territory to live in. Oh, God, increase my territory. Move out my tent pegs. Allow me to fight with you, God. You give me the power. I'll take the territory in my life. I'm ready to lay down my addiction before you. I'm ready to lay down forgiveness issues before you. I'm ready to lay down my baggage before you. I will do whatever it takes to be free. 
And then a few years pass by and it's hard and it's boring and it's every day. So eventually you get to the place of, well, I'm cool with my little track of land. Thanks, God. Appreciate it. I need you to understand this. Your heavenly father is not okay with you having only a little bit of room to move. It's not what Jesus bought for you. Jesus bought you a wide swath. He bought you the right that everywhere you put your foot, your dad already owns. Your Jesus bought you absolute authority and power. Your Jesus bought you the ability to be free. He gave you the ability to overcome that which stands against you. I know it's hard. It's always been hard. Just because Jesus gave it to you doesn't mean it's not difficult. I understand we'd love to pray once and all our prayers are answered, but that's not how it works. Why? I don't know. All I know is that Jesus said, I want you to pray without ceasing. I want you to pray and irritate me with your prayers. I want you to go, 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 go. I want you to ask, seek, and knock. Amen? And we got to keep breaking through. Why? Because God said so. And he's not all right with us just trying to walk around our Christian life really tiny, right? Where it's kind of like, well, I can go here. Well, the devil owns this. The devil owns this. The devil owns this. The devil owns that. Stop with all that. The devil doesn't own anything you don't give him. And Jesus said, we took it over. Amen? Can I have the prayer team come on up here as we close out? Here's the deal. The deal is, is that during this time that I've been preaching, the Holy Spirit was inside your heart being the yeah guy. Here's what he was doing. When Albert I would preach, he'd go, Yeah. Right? And then you're like, say something else. Yeah. Okay. If you got a yeah in your spirit and the Holy Spirit was like, that's what I'm talking about. You keep letting this dominate you. No, I know it's hard. I know they're scary. I get all that. What I'm telling you is I'll fight for you. I want you to have freedom. Now, remember, he's not saying if you don't do this, I'm not going to love you. He's not saying if you don't do this, I'm not, you're not my child. He didn't say any of that. Please don't let this mess with your identity. You know your identity. But your freedom is dependent on obedience to live it. Don't we want more freedom? Here's what we need to do. I'm going to be praying for the anointing over this team because anything that just sparked in your heart... And the Holy Spirit said, I want you to have freedom there. I want you to go get prayer for it. Why? Because these are representatives of the Lord. You come up and you go, listen, I don't even know why I'm here. All I know is that right now this area of my life is a stronghold and I can't even imagine being free. So I need a little bit of prayer because I can't do it alone. Would you pray with me? They're all confidential. No one ever talks about your prayer requests. No one ever shares your personal information. So if the Lord has tapped you on the shoulder, when I finish praying, I want you to come forward and I want you to meet with this team and let them pray breakthrough in your life. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for your freedom that you purchased for us through your son, Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, you have so much more for us. You say you have so much more excitement and more... Uh, clearing out of obstacles and getting us into the right places and having us run to the edge of your property 
which is the entire world. God, may we not be bullied. May we not be shoved back. May we not be afraid. May we not doubt. But Lord, you want breakthrough. And may we do the hard work it takes in order to claim and live in all the land you gave us. But God, you are great and mighty. There is nothing that can stand against you. And we hang on to that right here, right now. And we proclaim our victory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a wonderful week.